Well, Jim started off by talking about uh, the hundreds of reviews, and I, I should make a plug for his review in Social History. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, I, I wrote, I've written a review for Past and Present, which unfortunately is not yet posted on their site, but should be shortly. It's embargoed at the moment, but it's all complete. And I'll start off by summarising some of the points from that uh, article. Um, first of all, um, my approach is mainly to look at the argumentative structure of, of Piketty's book. Um, I'm not qualified to talk about the data, um, I'm not really qualified to talk about the conclusions. I want to talk about what comes in the middle. And the one point actually which I think uh, both previous speakers have alluded to is that what I say in this article is that it's a puzzling book, Piketty's book, because Piketty is assertive but equivocal. That is typically, and this isn't confined to this book, it's actually in a lot of his other articles as well. And in fact, He's recently produced another article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives for winter 200, 2015, which, in which he rose back from several of the major points which people think he meant in the first time. Um, so what he does is assert something apparently very clear, and yet in qualifying it leaves you wondering what on earth he means. And of course, what does he mean by capital? This is one of the major elements of this, and it, it's not just limited to this. The book is called Capital in the 21st Century. It's a clear allusion to Marx's capital of the 19th century, and yet the way in which he talks about Marx or Malthus or Ricardo come to that is very scrappy and bitsy-piecy. Um, and so there's a kind of strange disconnect between the apparent clarity with which he advances points and then the rather muddled and, and uh, sort of shuffling way in which he uh, qualifies what he first asserts. Um, <coughs> secondly, um, he does refer to the capital theory controversy, but in fact, obviously, as, uh, as, as previous speakers have also uh, uh, pointed out, is that the concept of capital here is extremely loose. He just equates it with wealth. He says it's the same thing as wealth. Uh, and, and how can, therefore, one uh, work with something as loose as that? And in fact, um, if we go back to the capital theory controversy and we go back to Joan Robertson's article of the early 1950s, 1953-54, in Review Economic Studies, um, that's where it all started. What do we mean by capital? And so there's the whole of the Cambridge capital argument between Cambridge economists, or Cambridge economists on both sides of the Atlantic, um, turned partly on this relationship between capital and labor. And there's a whole theoretical argument in, in, in the 60-year-long um, theoretical argument in economics which um, isn't there in Piketty's book. So for an economist, I'd say that he actually doesn't use very much economics. Also, things that aren't there, I would say, uh, which, which I would expect to find in a book on inequality is some kind of framework or a recognition of the whole literature of welfare economics and the, the ways in which uh, it develops. In fact, that's my main interest uh, in, as a historian. It relates to the early days of welfare economics with respect to Sidgwick and Marshall and Pigou. But um, there's a long history to these kinds of issues and the kinds of issues that Piketty addresses, and he seems very unfamiliar with it. Secondly, um, there is also, because of the way in which he presents his data, 
he, date, he presents the data in the book in the form of graphs. So it's a graphic. It's basically, it is all about U-shaped curves and inverted U-curves and their timing and whatever. Um, these are th these bring to mind the idea that what we're looking at really is elements of business cycle theory. That is, that we in, or in order to make sense of what we're presented with, we need to have a way of talking about trends, turning points, and aggregation. And there's none of that in this book. And in the post which I wrote last summer, which actually is on my website, which, which led to the past and present article, I called Piketty's book Kondratiev Redux. And he's basically, I say, the, 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 the story which he, he outlines um, is like uh, Kondratiev's long curves in three respects. There's no causal mechanism. Secondly, the data which is based on is fragmentary and excessively smooth. And so, in fact, the, the smooth um, trends we see are as much the result of the process of aggregation as anything else. And thirdly, the turning points in the cycle, this from the business cycle idea, this is the argument made against Kodratiev, which applies the same to Piketty. The turning points vary from country to country so that the actual D cycle applies to no one country. And so, you know, I think all of those arguments stand against uh, Piketty. But secondly, what's the challenge for economic historians here? I mean, uh, we, we could talk about the data and so forth. And um, if we look at, if we take the title seriously, and, and <coughs> as, as an aspiration, what, what Marx told us in the uh, preface to Capital Volume 1, that he was looking for the laws of motion of the capitalist mode of production. So he's looking for underlying laws which pulse through um, what we see around us. And I'll talk a bit later about uh, Marx's, uh, Marx's ideas about all of this. <coughs> but what happens in, um, in Piketty is he's constantly appealing to shocks. And so I can quote from his Journal of Economic Perspectives article. This is, there are demographic shocks. Some families have many children, have to split inheritances in many pieces. Some have few, some parents die late, some die soon. There are also shocks to rates of return. Some families make very good investments. There are shocks to labor market outcomes. So, so shock, shock, shocks. And in that context, um, it's useful to, to uh, remember Kindleberger's work uh, in uh, Mania Panics and Crashes. And he, he's, uh, he depends very heavily on the work of Minsky. And he starts off by saying, <coughs> so the key chapter says, he says, for historians, each event is unique. Economics, however, maintains that forces in society and nature behave in repetitive ways. History in particular, <coughs> economics is general. And I'd say that the task for economic historians is to somehow bridge that gap. And so we need both to look at the data and the material, yeah. and also to have some kind of way of rationally explaining what we see. And as again, I say that the, the way in which the kind of sprawling and equivocal account we get in Piketty doesn't really help us at all very much with that. So the task of theory is, in a sense, to um, identify the regularity in events. And you know, the, obviously, with, with modern business cycle theory, um, what the economists since the 19, I'd say since the 1990s, have constantly been making use of the, to the talk of shocks 
that basically, and as I say in my past and present uh, article, uh, say that if you have a theory which relies on shocks to actually explain anything, then you don't have much of a theory. So I think it's important also then, as, as Pat Hudson showed in the uh, Tawny lecture last year, it's important for economic historians also to have the right kind of theory, and, and Avnes very well outlined the kind of underlying um, uh, model that, uh, that, that, that uh, Piketty is relying upon. Um, and so, in a sense, what we could say is, well, part of the problem with Piketty's book is the kind of theoretical structure which underpins it. Um, and so if I discuss the progress of wealth and inequality, we, we need something more than some idea of providence as the way in which this progress carries on. I think that's, that's, that's the big issue. Um, <coughs> now, what I'd like to do, um, just, to, just my final remarks, I mean, this, so this is really sort of just discursive and just a, as an interesting point, is that I said earlier on that um, uh, Capital Volume 1, the book to which this, appear, this appeals, is um, addressed, so Marx tells us in the preface, to uh, the laws of motion of the capitalist mode of production. Um, and I would argue that nowhere in Capital Volume 1 do you actually see him do that. He doesn't actually do that, and, and that, that's not there. But What's interesting about well, say, the, all, what's interesting about capital as, a, as an idea is that it is, as modern econ economics seems to have gone, it is a financial entity. And when, in the financial crisis of uh, recent years, um, Marx came back on the agenda again, along with Keynes, um, it was because they, it was thought that somehow Marx had had been talking about this financial conception of capital, and it, that's that's incorrect. I mean, the only the only Marxist who's done that really was Hilferding in his Finanzkapital. Um, capital's account is uh, basically, in Capital Volume 1, is, a, is an account of the extraction of surplus value in an industrial process. It basically focuses on industrial, uh, industrial process. But this isn't to say that Marx did not actually have an interest in the financial sort of pulse behind this. That, um, in, while he was actually finishing, the well, while he was drafting Capital Volume 1, 1866 to 67, there was a major financial crisis in Britain with the collapse of Over and Gurney. Um, also, in the 1850s, um, he was prompted to start writing what we now know as the Grundrisse uh, by what Kindleberger calls the First World Economic Crisis, or First World Financial Crisis, sorry, associated with financial uh, with the railway companies and so forth. Now, the Overend and Gurney um, s crash in, um, in, the 18, in May 1866 um, was closely linked to changes in company law and the, uh, the, the development of um, limited liability. And Marx was very aware of this. Um, he, he, well, he, he, he wrote letters to, uh, to Engels about it, and actually there is later on, he, in, uh, as he was drafting Capital, towards the end of Capital Volume 1, there is some reference to, to this financial crisis. But he showed no particular interest in it at the time. However, in 1868 to February, well, September 1868 to February 1869, a period of about five, seven months, he 
went back over two publications, The Economist and the Money Market Review for 1866 to 67, and he made extremely detailed notes about the course of this in the financial crisis. And uh, there are about three sets of notebooks related to this, uh, which are soon to be published. However, what's interesting, he's never actually made any use of these notes. It would have been related to Capital Volume 2. And so, in a sense, we could say, well, Marx actually does have some idea that there's a financial pulse driving this along. That actually it starts, Kindleberger says, it starts with, with the 1857-58 crisis. The big crash in 1866 is the <coughs> second such crisis. And in a sense, what, what's happening and what I think Marx is sensing in capital, what he's trying to move towards with the more philosophical uh, conceptions which come out in terms of commodity fetishism, he's actually trying to, to, uh, to understand the way in which the world is increasingly being driven by financial concerns. The capital is a financial element. That capital isn't just money, it's institutions and organizations and the way they operate. And this is actually what, in sense, what people, when they turned, wanted to turn to Marx and the financial crisis, what they were thinking of. And I'd say that if we were going to understand the progress of inequality uh, in our modern world, we could do a lot worse than actually think of this as a financial problem and actually the way in which financialization of the world has created uh, increasing inequality and increasing problems. Thank you very much, Keith.